0: You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, friends, as a preacher, you, you believe this and you learn to trust the Word of God to do its work. You trust the Word of Christ to do the job. and it, the same time, as a preacher, you work to hone the craft of preaching. Sometimes it serves a message well, rhetorically, to play things close to the vest. And other times it's helpful to just come on out with it and say the thing at the beginning. And this is one of those times. So I, I want us to have in our minds something particular, something specific, as we look to our text this morning. So here it is. We all struggle to grasp how freedom produces obedience. We all struggle to understand, to grasp how freedom produces obedience. I was talking with a group of, of guys the other night, brothers, members of this church. And one of them said, in light of this topic, man, we are just hardwired to think differently. We're hardwired to think differently than the Scripture speaks on this matter. That's true. We do have a very hardwired legal frame. Now there's a reason for that. God not only wrote His law into creation and on the human conscience, He made a covenant with Adam, that was contingent upon Adam's works. It was contingent upon Adam's obedience. Adam could have earned eternal life through obeying. And he could forfeit it through disobeying. We still tend to think the same way. We try to operate the same way. But you know, and I know, that after Adam's fall, it does not work like that anymore. It cannot. So my hope and prayer for our time today is that we will be helped to better understand and to better feel. I'm using that word on purpose. To understand and feel how the freedom we have been given in Christ leads to us bearing fruit for God. May the Lord grant us that. It will be time well spent. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Romans chapter 7. And as you take a moment to turn there, let me remind us of what Paul had written in Romans chapter 6. Because it's always good to understand a specific text in light of what has come before. Paul, of course, in Romans 1 through 5, had expounded the doctrine of justification. How is it that a sinful human being can be found just in the sight of the Holy God? He had made that plain. That it is not by our works, but it is by faith in Christ who fulfilled the law and endured its curse. In chapter 6, Paul demonstrates and proves, as we've considered for weeks, the fact that there is an inseparable connection between the justification of the believer and the sanctification of the believer. He begins to do this by anticipating an objection to the doctrine that he's been expounding. Should we, given that all this is true, that it's not, our justification is not contingent upon us, and that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, should we not then, Paul, just sin? And his answer, as you know, was by no means. And his reason is that we, the saints, have been united to Christ. His appeal is completely to the believer's union with Jesus and the believer's new identity in Jesus. The sanctification of believers, as we've rejoiced in for weeks now, rests on the same foundation and comes from the same source as our justification, namely Christ himself in our union with him. So we've been united to Jesus says Paul in his death. In him we died to the guilt of sin. We're no longer under its curse and we have been justified from it. Through our union with Christ, we now partake of the life that is in him. From the moment that we're united to Christ, the source of our sanctification is opened up, the streams begin to flow, and they do not dry up. We are, therefore, says Paul, to consider ourselves, to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. We must be convinced that this is our actual state now, and we hold fast to that confession. And the fact that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ is the entire ground of our Christian living. We considered, from chapter 6, from the pen of the apostle, that the fact that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, as a result of what Christ has done in our union with Him, sin will not have dominion over us. Fact. Having been delivered from sin's guilt, Believers will, as a result, be delivered from sin's dominion. Now, Paul knows, just like you know, just like I know, that our sanctification is not yet perfect. And so, he writes with the understanding that we are still susceptible to sin and liable to temptation. And so, it's good that we would consider who we are in Christ now compared to what we used to be. We're not who we used to be anymore. We used to be slaves of sin. But now says Paul, we have become obedient from the heart. Not mere external conformity, but from the heart. We are now says Paul, slaves to righteousness. We should Consider that and think that. We strive, therefore, to obey. We strive to obey because it's good for us. We strive to obey because it's good for our neighbor. We strive to obey because it honors God. After all, Paul reasoned with us what fruit were we getting from sinning? Nothing good, and it ends in death. Why would we go there? But now, in Christ, as a result of what's happened to us and in us, the fruit that we bear is good. Good for us. Good for our neighbor. It honors the Lord. And it ends in life. And in all of this, we are to remember that the just recompense for sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we dive into Romans 7, I want to draw particular attention to Romans 6, 14. If you have your Bibles open, you can put your eyes on that verse. Paul tells us there that sin will have no dominion over us. Fact. Book it. Own it. And then he tells us why. Because you are not under law, but under grace. Beginning in Romans 7, 1. Paul is going to further explain this concept, this truth, that we are not under the law anymore, but under grace now, that we've in fact been released from the law. And he's going to help us better understand that deliverance and what it means for us. So with all of that, by way of introduction, let's look to Romans chapter seven, we're going to be considering verses one to six, but listen now, as I read these verses. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law we at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan for us this morning is we're going to spend a good bit of time in the text. I have three points from the verses for us. Then I have two points of reflection and application, and then a closing illustration that I hope will be of help to us. So three points from the text to begin. Point one, a divinely inspired illustration. Point one, a divinely inspired illustration. We're going to look very briefly at verses one to three. This is straightforward. You can see this in the text just as I can. So in these verses, Paul helps us to logically understand how we are free from the law. He asks a question in verse 1. He inserts that he knows that he's writing to people who know the law. Remember, this church would have been made up of Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish people would have certainly known the law of Moses. But the understanding is that the Gentiles in this church would have been taught the law. right? So I'm writing to those who know the law, he says. And he asks them a question about it. His question is simple. Do you not know? that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So then Paul's going to drive it home in verses 2 and 3, illustrating it by appealing to the law of marriage. His point is simple. There is no freedom from the law unless a death occurs. But when a death occurs, there is freedom from the letter of the law. Straightforward enough, right? There is no freedom from the law unless a death occurs. But when a death occurs, there is freedom from the letter of the law. That's point one. We're making a lot of traction. Point two. Applying it to us. He's going to now speak to how this applies to his readers and thereby the church of God from all time. Verse four. Likewise says Paul, we have died to the law through the body of Christ. And what he means, we're going to think about this more, is through the death of Christ in the flesh on the cross. We have died to the law. We're going to consider this verse in sections. Beginning. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. You see that on the page. The law in view is very clearly God's moral law. right? The law that we had confessed this morning was written into creation was written on the human conscience and on the human heart. Romans 2, 14 and 15 bear witness to this fact, that even for Gentiles who did not have the the Ten Commandments, did not have the Mosaic Law, the law was written on their hearts. It is this law to which all men, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, are subject. It was summarized in ten words and written on two tablets of stone. This is the law that's in view. It is to the moral law that Paul appeals throughout this chapter. So being dead to the law is to be free from its power. It is being dead to the law is to be as though you have endured its curse already. To be as though you have satisfied its demands. Though the law continues to be the rule of our living, It no longer has a claim on us. This is how we need to understand it. We are no longer under the law, as was said earlier, as a taskmaster. We are no longer under the law to perfectly obey it for life. And we are no longer under it to be condemned by it for our disobedience. To be dead to the law is to be free from its power to condemn. This is a big deal. Because all human beings by nature, by birth, are placed under the law. The law as a covenant of works, right? Think the relationship that God had with Adam, the covenant God made with Adam. The law as a covenant of works has this word to us. Do this and you'll live. has this word to say to us. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. The law has this word for us. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. But here's the thing. Ever since Adam, the law is a broken law. And so everyone is under its curse. Its curse must be administered to every human being. Hear this. Either personally, as in you bear it, or in Christ, who is the representative, the covenant head of every believer who is united to him. The curse of the law will be administered to every person either you yourself or Christ in your place. For his people, Jesus bore the curse of the law and fulfilled its demands. It's done. And this, and only this, is exactly how we are dead to the law. We are no longer under it, hear this, as a covenant. Only through being united to Jesus can we be freed from the law in this regard. Continuing on. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. Then he says, through the body of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 10. Listen to these words. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And then these words, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Being dead to the law through the body of Christ means being dead to it By dying in Christ's death. Remember the language of Paul from the early verses of Romans 6. This has occurred for the saints, right? We have been united with Jesus. We have been baptized into what? Into his death. We have been crucified with him. We were buried with him by baptism into death. Being one with him, beloved. When he died, we died to the law and to the guilt of sin. That's the apostles' argument. Representation. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Hear these things again and let them sink in. We cannot hear them enough. In Christ, We are free from the law as a covenant to be kept for life. We are done with it as it pertains to our justification or our condemnation. We are done with the law as it pertains to reward or curse eternally. We cannot be justified by it because we have not obeyed it perfectly. And we cannot. Be condemned by it. Because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Paul continues on. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To Him who has been raised from the dead. Paul again borrows here On his appeal to the law of marriage. We are no longer married to the law. Through our union with Christ. He is now our lawful husband. We are now his bride. Think Ephesians chapter 5. We no longer belong to the law. We belong to Jesus. We no longer, therefore, appealing to the law of marriage, we no longer, therefore, have any connection to our former husband, which is the law. I don't know about you, but this is a comforting truth. We are as free from the law as a covenant. We are as free from the covenant of the law as if we had never been under it. We no longer have anything to do with the law as it pertains to our justification or our condemnation. We are no longer under Adam's covenant. We are under Christ's covenant. Paul is further explaining what he had written in chapter 6 in verse 14. That we are not under law, but under grace no longer under Adam's covenant of works, but now under Christ's covenant of grace. He goes on. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. In God's plan, We belong to Christ so that we might bear fruit unto Him. You want hashtag God's plan. There it is. It is belonging to Christ that enables us and results in us bearing fruit to God. John 15. Listen to these words from John 15. This is Christ's last night on earth before His crucifixion. He's speaking to his disciples. Abide in me, remain. When you hear that word abide, live and remain in me, right? Abide in me and I in you. There's union. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, my father is glorified. That you bear fruit, right? By this, my father is glorified. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Those are good words. We do not bear fruit unto God apart from being united to Christ. In Christ, we have died to the law, says the apostle, so that we might belong to Christ and so that we might live to God. We heard these words read earlier in our service. They're good to hear again from Galatians chapter two. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. That should sound familiar. I have been crucified with Christ. That should sound familiar. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's how the fruit is born. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Romans 7.4 is a remarkable It is precisely our being freed from the law and our belonging to Jesus that results in our bearing fruit for God. I say this again because this is not how we naturally think. Point three from the text. We're going to look at verses five and six for a few minutes. Header on point three is then and now. Then and now. Look at verse five. For while we were living in the flesh, says Paul. In other words, while we were still in our natural state, our corrupt state. Before our union with Jesus. While we were still under the law as a covenant. While it was still our taskmaster. He says this. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So disconnected from union with Christ and the grace of God, the law does not restrain the recklessness of sin at a spiritual level. I say it that way because historically we do understand that externally speaking, the law does restrain corruption, right? There's threats for breaking it. Reward's promise for keeping it. It does work in that regard. But at a spiritual level, at the level of the heart, apart from union with Christ and the grace of God, the law does not restrain the recklessness of our sin. Far from it, actually. Disconnected from union with Christ and the grace of God, the law only exacerbates our sinful passions. The more our sinful cravings are checked by the righteous restraints of the law, the more furiously and violently they break out and erupt. I mean, this is an undebatable reality in this world. The fallen mind and the fallen heart desire what is forbidden. It's a rule of life. Our experience bears this out. And the scriptures bear witness to it. Having said that, why and how this is the case is not a question that we can answer or resolve. But what we can say regarding the law as a covenant of works, as a taskmaster, is that far from producing fruits of righteousness, it actually provokes sin resulting in fruit unto death. This is why John Calvin writes on Romans 7 and verse 5 that the law by itself is destructive. And it hence follows that the kingdom of righteousness is not established except when Christ emancipates us from the law. Important clarification. If what I just read, I read it from John Calvin so that it's not me saying it only. But if what I just read makes you nervous, that's appropriate in some senses. Important clarification. There is nothing wrong with the law. Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. The law is good, it's upright, and it's holy. It is a reflection of the character of God who gave it. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with you and me, right? It's with our corruption and our guilt, our sinfulness, our cravings, our passions. This is why in Romans 7, verses 7 to 12, Paul is going to say this very thing. Because having written what he's written here, he has to explain himself. There's nothing wrong with the law. We'll get there in the coming weeks, Lord willing. just want to say it today lest anybody misunderstand. Verse 6. But now, says Paul, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. There that is again. Brother, you keep talking about this. Take it up with the Apostle Paul. right? He keeps writing it. Look at the language. Released from the law. Having died to that which held us captive. No longer under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it. No longer under the condemnation of the law. No longer under its rigid requirements of perfection. No longer under its curse. Rejoice in that. This again has occurred through the death of Christ and our death in Him. He endured the curse. He paid its penalty. In Christ, so have we. In Christ, we've died to the law. Let this comfort your soul. God is just. What kind of God would He be if He wasn't? He will punish evil. He does not grade on a curve. The standard is perfection. His wrath against evil is a holy and righteous wrath. which for people who have come to see Him this way and have come to see His law as good and holy as it is, there is often reason for fear and trepidation. Because we get it. In measure, we get it. This holy God will administer perfect justice. And that is a terrifying thought for sinful human beings. But be comforted that Christ has taken it all. Everything that you deserve and I deserve, he has paid it, and regardless of how well you may be doing today or how well you may be doing tomorrow, based upon your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no reason to fear condemnation. The law has no claim on you or me, and that's not because we've kept it. It's because Christ has kept it and endured its curse for us. Be comforted. Paul says. We have been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. We're free now, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the effect of being freed from the law. We serve the Lord differently. We serve God now in faith. We serve God now holding fast to our confession that we're dead to sin and alive to Him in Christ. We serve God now as those who are under grace. We serve God now from the heart. We serve God as those who are justified. We serve God as those who are in Christ. We serve God as those who have been adopted as sons and daughters. So we're not slaves. We're beloved children. We're not hired hands. We're heirs. We serve God now via our union with Christ, via our belonging to another. The streams are flowing and they don't run dry. It is His Spirit that is at work in us. We are compelled now not by fear, not by God's wrath. We are compelled now by God's love and grace and mercy. We are motivated by love and joy and gratitude and freedom. We don't serve like we used to serve. Regarding serving by the old way of the written code, I want to make some clarification here. Because I think a lot of times we demonize this and we make it sound, I don't know, maybe different than we should. Serving by the old way of the written code still upholds the law as having light and authority. Serving by the old way of the written code still upholds the law as holy. In fact, terrifyingly holy. Serving in the old way of the written code entails seeking life, though, by the code. Either in full or in part. Serving in the old way of the written code is done effectively in one's own strength. One's own willpower. Discipline sincerity, fervor without the Spirit of God and His sanctifying grace. Motivations under the old way of the written code are fear and dread or the escape of punishment as well as the pursuit of reward, merit. These things motivate in the old way of the written code. Again, I want to read from a theologian who's been long dead so that you don't just hear these things from me. Robert Haldane wrote the following about the new and the old way of service. These words are strong and good. Regarding the new way, he says this, serving in the spirit is a service of filial obedience to him who gave himself for us as constrained by his love and in the enjoyment of all of the privileges of the grace of the new covenant. It is the service not of the hireling but of the son, not of the slave but of the friend, not with the view of being saved by the keeping of the law, but of rendering grateful obedience to their almighty deliverer. Amen. Regarding the old way, he wrote this Much outward conformity to the law may in this way be attained from the pride of self righteousness, without any principle better than that of a selfish, slavish, Mercenary carnal disposition, influenced only by fear of punishment and hope of reward. That's the difference between serving in the new way of the spirit and the old way of the written code. I want to move on now to a couple of points of reflection and application. The first one is effectively Philippians chapter three, verses one to 14. We're going to just turn there. I'm going to read it and make some comments. I want to look at this passage in light of our text today, but in particular, in light of verse six. The old way of the code, the new way of the spirit. So I think the verses will be on the screen behind me. We're going to go ahead and make our way. Philippians chapter three. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I love that verse for many reasons. Just as an aside, Paul keeps saying the same things about righteousness in Christ because it's. No trouble to him, and it's safe for the saints. Amen to that. Here we go. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out for the circumcision party, right? Those who would uphold keeping some aspect of the law for at least a piece of your righteousness. That's a warning about the old way of the written code. It's what it is. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put No confidence in the flesh. That's the new way of the spirit right there. Verses two and three describe two different ways. Verses four to six, as you look at it, he's going to describe the old way of the written code some more. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Notice the appeal is I, I, I. It's what I was doing. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. External conforming to the law, I'm killing it, crushing it. That's a description of the old way of the written code. But then he pivots. He's now going to describe what he alluded to in verse three. The new way of life in the spirit. Here it comes. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on These words should sound so familiar as we've made our way through Romans. That I may know, says Paul, Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then verses 12-14 to are incredibly valuable. The new way in the Spirit does not mean that we're allergic to striving. We strive. But notice the posture. Notice the understanding, the thing that undergirds the striving. Look at it. Not that I've already obtained this. Not that I'm there yet. Or that I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Because of. Right? Not so that. We've been considering that. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's how we live. That is the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. Amen. Second reflection piece of application here. The header in my notes is this. When it comes to us and the law, everything has changed. When it comes to us and the law, everything has changed. I've said this a lot today. We don't belong to the law anymore. We aren't under the covenant of works anymore. We belong to Jesus now. And we're now under His covenant of grace. These truths are what has changed everything. So consider this with me. We can never look to the law as a good thing until we know that we are out from under its condemnation. We cannot look to the law as a good thing until we know that we are out from under its condemnation. No one delights in the thing that is their death sentence. We're going to get there soon. When Paul says in Romans 7.22 that he delights in the law of God and his inner man, Only a person who has been justified, forgiven, and absolved could ever say such a thing. This is why it is so critical that we have died to the law's curse and died to its penalty. That we have died to sin's guilt. Because now that we have been justified... Now that we have been forgiven, now that we have been absolved, we can look to God's law and say, it's good, and I delight in that. Here's another thought for us. Now that we belong to Christ, we now receive the law from Christ's hand. He is a merciful, gracious, compassionate Savior. He is the one who endured the law's curse and fulfilled its requirements and it is from his hand that we now receive the law. It's a sweet image and a sweet thought. We no longer receive the law from the trembling mountain of Sinai but from the hand of the Savior who died for us. And here's the critical piece. We receive the law from Christ's hand as the rule for our lives. Not as a covenant to be kept for life at the threat of death. We receive it as the rule for our living. By Christ's spirit, by his work in us, we are made to delight in the law and we are taught more and more to love it. Part of our growth in the faith If we assess it over the span of a lifetime, we are taught by Christ himself to love the law more. Not as the thing that's going to save us or condemn us, but as the rule for our living. We look at it and we agree with God and say that is good. Contrast this with verse 5 from our text today. You remember how it was before our union with Christ? You remember how the law, all it did was exacerbate our sinful passions? We just, the harder we were restrained by it, the harder we kick back against it. How different then is it for us in Christ? Yes, the corruption of our flesh remains, but rather than the law just inciting us to sin, we now receive it from the hand of a loving Savior as our guide for living, and rather than kicking against it and seeing it as oppressive, we agree with it and we strive to obey it. The thing that I used to hate, the thing I used to strive against, the thing that I used to think oppressed me, I now in Christ look at and say, That is good. May I live unto that. Again, it's a supernatural religion, guys. This is not your own doing. You don't produce that kind of 180 in you. Only the Lord does this work. Final thought here under this kind of second point of reflecting and applying. Understanding the distinction between the law as a rule for life versus the law as a covenant to be kept for life changes everything. Let me rephrase this. On the one hand, understanding the law as a rule for living versus understanding it as something I must keep to have life, the distinction between those two things makes all the difference in the world. Many in the room are familiar with Martin Luther. Coming to this understanding, the distinction between the law as a rule for living, where Christ has fulfilled it, and died under it, versus the law as a covenant to be kept for life or death, was a big piece of what made Martin Luther feel, as he put it, as though he was now at the gates of paradise. Understanding that distinction. I no longer am under the law to keep it for my salvation in any way. I'm now under the law as the guide for my living in Christ Jesus. Changes everything. I want to close with an illustration. All illustrations fall apart. I don't use them often. But this is an illustration that was born out of a conversation with a couple of other pastors a number of weeks ago. And I hope that it helps us see in some way how belonging to Christ and freedom from the law enable us to serve God and bear fruit for Him. And how the law and the gospel work together to stir us unto obedience. So this is an illustration that many, many families in the room will be able to identify with, both parents and children. So there's a A father and his son, and the son just does not ever do a good job of keeping his room clean. It's an ongoing conversation between the dad and his son. It's a serious matter. I mean, there have been many instances of discipline for the boy. This is kind of that ongoing like elephant in the room in the household between the dad and the son. As time went on, the father had seen some changes in the young man. Maturity, thoughtfulness, love, respect. But the boy could still not keep his room clean. So there comes a day when the dad says to his son, Son, your room is a mess. I mean, it's an abject disaster in there. And it's, it's not okay. You know that. We're going to go and look at it together. And he can see it all over the boy's face. Son, I know that you know that you're wrong. And we'll figure out what this is going to mean for you. The son is panicked. His heart is racing. The blood is rushing to his face. Father and son, they walk upstairs to the boy's bedroom. The door is closed. Go on, says the father. Open it. The boy opens the door. And he walks into a room that is perfectly clean and in order. And he's overcome. He had not wanted to fail his father. But he knew that he had. And at the sight of seeing his room clean, having been afraid, fearful, anxious, he turns and he throws himself into his father's arms and he embraces him. Now, let me ask you a question. In that moment, and moving forward from that moment, Do you think that the son was less motivated to keep his room clean? Or more motivated to keep his room clean? Having been set free from the condemnation of the law, knowing that we deserve every bit of it, the condemnation, seeing the love and the grace of God to us, seeing Jesus and what he did for us, taking our guilt and our shame and covering us then with his own righteousness. Are we now less motivated to pursue obedience? Or are we actually motivated to pursue obedience? Of course, we're not less motivated. Having beheld the love and the grace of God, having beheld Christ for us, what is the cry of your heart and mine? Is it not, Lord, may I serve you forever? May I be your servant forever? Beloved, may we remember the love of our Father for us. And may we look to Jesus and what He did for us. And having done that, having considered that, being reminded of that week over week here, may we now serve him forever. Let's pray.